0: I would never have made the relationships or earned the right to kind of do some of the really groundbreaking things I did if I'd have gone in with that heavy-handed approach. you really got to understand where you're at. But then you have to paint a vision for where you want to go. And it has to be ambitious and it has to be exciting and it has to be stretching.
1: Have you ever felt like a failure? Felt like you let a lot of people down? That's exactly how my guest today felt. He went to a great school. But he came out with nothing really to show for it. His immigrant mum, who couldn't speak English when she came here, had worked her butt off to provide opportunity for him. And he felt he let her down. But he didn't let that failure define him. He managed to work his way up to become the HR director for Europe, Middle East and Africa, one of the biggest advertising firms in the world. We delve into that story today. We also talk about being neurodiverse, We talk about school and why he actually struggled while he was in that environment. We talk about other amazing lessons learned from his mom. We delve into regrets that he's had. We talk about the changes and influences that he's bringing to the world of leadership, to culture, to organizations with the Mavericks Manager Toolkit. Has he's a husband he's a father he's an exec coach leadership expert he's the co-founder of mavericks unlimited he's also the co-host of the 105 miles podcast he's a board advisor to a lot of startups and he's a man who has ridiculous amount of experience so let me stop talking so you can delve into his story but get a pen get a paper because you're gonna want to take notes Welcome to another episode of Everyday Leadership. And so it was great when I can talk to a friend. <laughs> and um, I have, I'm going to start with husband. I have husband, father, and then he's an executive coach. He's a great leadership expert. He's a board advisor to several startups, he's a co founder of Mavericks Unlimited. And also, the co host of the 105 Miles podcast, which is absolutely amazing. So, definitely make sure to check it out, as well as having extensive experience in, in just HR, like Sacha and Sachi, Colin Wolf, EDC. The list goes on of my guest, Hassan. I'm going to call it, should I call it Pedigree? When I talk about experience and the knowledge and the diversity of the different things I've been able to involve over these years, it's absolutely amazing. So, it's a pleasure to have you on today. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing really well. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for that uh, auspicious uh, <laughs> uh, uh, intro. I, I'll try and live up to it. I've been really looking forward to this. We've been talking about doing this conversation for a while. Obviously, we have conversations, but to come onto your podcast is a real honour. So thank you for having me. Right. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. And
1: one thing I was definitely intrigued about where, I guess like I said, being have to stalk your friends for a podcast is a great excuse. You started off in Virgin. And I was interested in how that journey led you into HR. Did HR come before Virgin or did Virgin come before HR?
0: It didn't make it onto the CV on LinkedIn, but I actually started a blockbuster video.
1: Oh, we're getting uh, way back. Yeah,
0: yeah, way back, way back. <laughs> blockbuster video in Tottenham. And uh, I know you know that because we're both from the same ends. But yeah, I started there and there's a bit of a story actually, because I left school with no... A levels to be proud of. Let's just put it that way. I had an intention to do my resits by myself and re-educate myself on a journey of what I thought the discipline I didn't have at school. I thought I'd miraculously get it, you know, once I left school. But I also needed a job at the time, And so I moved. I found a job in Blockbuster Video, which was for me an absolute joy. I'm a film nut, and uh, so to be able to get paid in free movies was. At the time, I thought, amazing. Right now, I see that I was getting completely exploited. But, you know, <laughs> uh, context and perspective is everything. But no, from there, I moved to Virgin. I really found that I loved working in retail and sort of fast-tracked my way through retail into HR. And then I guess the rest, they say, is history. The reason I think it's important is when I left school with no A-levels, I felt like a failure. I felt like I'd let my mum down. I felt like i let my family down. And I was kind of hiding. Because I'd spent the last seven years up to GCSE and then A-level in the same institution, which was a very good private school, you're conditioned that there's only one track, which is academia, study, study, study. And if you don't succeed, where all of my peers were going to university, I wasn't. I felt like a failure. And then I moved into what was supposed to be just a part-time job. And I just really realised I love people. I absolutely love hanging out with people, talking about things that I'm passionate about. And I took real pride in my work, even though I was kind of just, you know, I was stacking shelves and basically signing people up to a blockbuster video. I took real pride. And it was from there that I started to just build a tiny bit of confidence. And that's what took me into Virgin Megastores in Oxford Street, which is kind of stepping up a gear, really. And I think that was where I really learned. And within about six months, I was a product supervisor. So I was starting to buy product for... A multi-million-pound department, and at 19, I then took responsibility for one of those departments, which was you know managing 50 people and a turnover of 13 million. That's where my sort of my love for working with people professionally that's where it
1: started really. And then I decided to study and move into HR from there. That's remarkable. And that distinction where you said around having that one track, this is how you do things, and you actually showing that. By you stepping into something that you enjoyed doing, it birthed something different inside of you, allowed you to go onto the career we're going to talk about shortly. But I'm also intrigued because you talked about when you stepped into Blockbuster, you were just stacking shelves, but you were hardworking. So why was it that that clicked in that environment, but in school, nothing was really clicking for you, hence why you came out with GCSEs? It's a great question.
0: I, I don't really know the answer. I just, I think it's, partly how I was raised. You know, I was, I was raised to do things well. And I had, clearly I know now that I'm a bit of a control freak as well. So I had a bit of that in me. I think what I've subsequently reflected on, and this is the genesis of, of a lot of our work at Mavericks, is there is no one pathway to success. There is no one route. And when you go into the education system, it is just the way, because you have to you know teach at scale, This is the way and you have to fall into line. And it didn't really account for back in the day for neurodiversity. I probably could have been really successful at school if teachers understood that I needed to learn in a different way. So I'm not anti-education. I'm pro-education. I have three kids, as you know, and I want them to do well. I want them to enjoy it. But you have to enjoy learning. You have to learn in the right way. And I just realised that very quickly going to a private school, I fell behind very early. In terms of the structure and process, I was always intellectually capable, but because of the structure and process, it kind of left me behind. Very early on, I started to carry this kind of failure. But whenever I did do things that were I was really passionate about, I was, you know, I always used to ace it. And I just, you know, with hindsight, I realised now that that's probably what I needed more of. But the school system, unfortunately, particularly in the st- on, you know, in state education, is it's the underfunded. It's under-supported. Teachers are overstretched. There's no space for individuality. you just got to be able to try and get as much done as you can. So I I sort of sympathise, but it it needs to evolve because what we need now to succeed is very different to what we were told we needed back then.
1: That's 100% so true. And do you have a distinction between purpose and passion?
0: Uh, uh, Passion for me is what fuels you. Purpose is what you're here to do i love this mark twain quote which is the two most important days of your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why yeah and uh, so i think passions are your energizers you know i think we may come on to talk about superpowers yeah that's it it's what drives you it's what gets you going it's what you know it's what feeds your uh purpose but your purpose is what you're here to do it's, it's your legacy it's, it's the impact you're here to make
1: So when you started to step into guessing what you can describe as your passion, which is around in in HR, what was that um, experience like for you as you started to rise up from Virgin to the different organisations you worked with?
0: I think if I look back at the, the retail career and then transcending into the HR and the people career, the thing that really you know, connects the two is my passion for people. Mm -hmm. And that actually lived through me even before I started working. My mum always tells the story of as soon as, you know, like when we used to have those, we used to have dial-up phones, you know, in the house before and the phone would ring. We didn't have mobile phones in those days. The phone would ring. Someone would say, right, we're coming over. My mum would say I would run upstairs. Like when I was young, I'd get a chair, get like a like like my best outfit on, and then I would like, I'd come downstairs and I'd be the, the host. I'd be making tea and getting biscuits and getting, you know, always a bit of a charmer, I was told. And uh, so I always loved people. I've always been a bit of an extrovert. I've always enjoyed the company of other people. I like my own company as well. But I realised that my passion for people has always been there. Professionally, it was when I realised that I didn't want to do retail operations anymore. I just needed to think about what I wanted to do and it was all around people. The things I loved doing was, you know, about finding great talent, nurturing talent. I even perversely loved kind of managing performance, you know, to see people, you know, improve through kind of process. So it was a no brainer for me to go and study that and then move on. But as I sort of progressed through my career, I realised that my vision for what I could be, you know, doing change. So it was very much, when you go into HR, it's very much people-centred, how to be, you know, a great supporter of people. But then I really started to appreciate the value of organisational development, organisational psychology, the impact that I could have at scale. And that's where I started to kind of have a, a foot in both parts where, you know, I was still thinking about people, engagement, nurturing them, but also I was thinking about how do we grow exponentially through our people? And that's what kind of where my focus uh, began to move towards it as I sort of increased my roles and responsibilities through my career.
1: Was that an um, easy switch for you going from retail into HR? Because like you said, you're, you're 19, obviously you grew up through that, but you're 19, you're leading so many people, you've got a great position. That's that's a lot of responsibility and a lot of like, oh, look at me, Like I'm doing well for myself. Look at all those people who yeah. thought I wasn't going to make it and I've done yeah. something. And now you're deciding making that decision to pivot out of that and move into something else.
0: I wish the story was more poetic than what I'm about to tell you. But basically what really started to signal the end of my retail career was I hated working weekends at Holiday. And, bank <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, used to, I used to work at the Camden store. Like we, we launched that Camden store. And so a lot of my friends used to pop in either on their way to Hampstead or back from it, and uh, let's just say they were sometimes a little bit, you know, a little bit more merry than I was, <laughs> and uh, and and I said, "That's it, I've had enough." And I was young, but know, but I knew that the pathway was regional management, potentially operations manager, head office, and just it, no passion, no passion for that at all. I saw, I knew even then that it wasn't for me, and the pivot to HR was the best thing I ever did because it really validated that I could do something well. I was lucky, really lucky that there was a lot of change going on at Virgin at the time, a lot of corporate reorganisation. And so an opportunity, as soon as I literally, as soon as I finished my course, an opportunity came up to take a secondment, a one year secondment in head office. It was a big moment actually, because I had to let go of my permanent job in retail. So I had to leap both feet in because Mm -hmm. potentially if that role didn't, get made permanent at head office, nothing. then I would have had been without a job and I built a career there. But I knew it was what I needed
1: to do. And I took it with both hands and um, I obviously ever looked back. That's amazing. And I think it's, that's a really good point. Those signals, doesn't matter what they are. I think a lot of times we ignore signals that come up and we think, oh, yeah, this, this, that's just something that's just a feeling for today. But if something repeatedly is coming up for you, regardless of how it presents itself, it's something that you definitely should pay attention to because it's your mind and that internal side of you telling you, this is not it. This is not the lane I should be walking down. And the more you ignore it, the more you head down a path that leads to a lack of fulfillment and which mm-hmm. you're a good example of you listening to those signals and stepping into you said HR and everything's come up out that. So that's really, really good example like that.
0: Yeah. 100%. Like my philosophy on life is always listen to your intuition, which is exactly what you're talking about, the signals. And I I love the way that you positioned it, which is, it's not just your heart, it's your head, it's your whole computation system working. It's all of the evidence that you've built up, the knowingness that helps you to decide, oh, this feels like the right thing to do, or this doesn't feel like the right thing to do. And wherever I've had those moments of pivot, I've listened to my intuition and so for example, when I left Virgin, I actually went to join another retailer well known now, but it was quite small at the time. And I was charged with going in and, and, you know, setting out their whole HR philosophy. And I walked in and it was, it was just, it was really clear to me on day one that we were just different people. We just, the, the vibe wasn't right. And I kept going, I kept my head down, kept working, but you know, very, very early on, I knew it wasn't for me. And, uh, Even at that young age, I knew that I had to make a call. And so I had a very difficult conversation with the CFO who had hired me. And he wasn't great about it, actually. He was was kind of rude about it. And as soon as I walked out the door, I knew I made the right call. And literally within 10 minutes, I got a call about a short-term gig at Grey Advertising. And Grey Advertising was the beginning of my whole career in HR leadership. That you know, the way I really was able to craft my, you know, my reputation and to kind of go and make an impact, and it was because I decided to listen to those signals, Mm. take action. Because taking actions as important as listening to the signals, I took action, and and then lots of you know opportunities came as a result of it.
1: And I think you've really got to do that. Yeah, percent. So you, those opportunities that came and the experiences that led to led to you being in roles that meant you traveled around the world and you, you tap into different cultures. And that's something that especially in this present day as companies expand globally as the way of hybrid working, remote working becomes the norm. You're having people who are coming in from different cultures. And I'm curious to learn from some of your experiences. How do you start to learn and understand different cultures if it's different to your own values of the way of your default way of operating how do you Mm. integrate both those those two things together Mm.
0: something that chris always talks about is seek first to understand then be heard so listening is incredibly important not going and telling so one of the things I found coming into the regional role at Saatchi & Saatchi, we talked about my various roles. One of the roles was I was at 32. I was kind of promoted into being the EMEA HR director of Saatchi & Saatchi, uh, which was, you know, one of the most famous advertising uh, networks in the world. I came into the role and what I observed was that it was a very London-centric regional decision-making unit, right? We were responsible for a region as diverse as, Western Europe, but then we had South Africa, we had Middle East, we had Russia. And each one of those countries have a, has a very established, heritage-driven uh, way of operating professionally in business way. Whereas London often used to kind of just fire out these edicts and, you know, this is how we're going to do. And it was always very London-centric. And I realised that actually, no, I need to go in, I need to listen, I need to meet them at their level, I need to understand what they're pain points are, what their challenges are, what their opportunities are, I need to understand what they're trying to get uh, done and really just meet them at an individual level and then try and bring out some consistencies in value from what I bring. I, I'll be really honest, I'll tell you where this comes from. It comes from growing up in Tottenham, every day waking up in Tottenham, getting on the train and then going into the heart of the city and, and going to a private school and hobnobbing with MP sons, actor sons and all that sort of stuff because you have to be really connected with who you are first but you have to listen and you have to be able to absorb different cultures and then you come home, and then I would come home I'd be back in Tottenham again and you have to be able to assimilate with every kind of people and that's what I think has really helped me be successful is to be as comfortable as I can in who I am as a person but also be open and listen to the fact that people come from different places in life and they have different experiences and they have different roots in which is obviously you know the basis of setting up a company called Mavericks Unlimited we we believe in individual power and strength and story and authenticity and these sorts of things as we become a much more globally connected society even more listen don't tell listen and then find a way
1: to connect on a level together I'm gonna go a slight detour here because I'm so curious. <laughs> How did you go from Tottenham to private
0: school? My mum. My mum had a vision. So one of my strengths, as you know, as defined by uh, kind of the, the work that we do around scope is strategic mindedness. So the ability to look forward into the future, and I think I must have inherited that from my mum because I think she saw a future for me. She didn't like the look of potentially because you know what it's like. Like, you know, like there are some routes that you can take when you grow up in someone like Tottenham that that can set you on a pathway that you can't come back from. And she was very worried about that, I'm sure. So, very early on, she decided that she wanted me to try and win a scholarship. It's called an assisted place. So, basically, it was very few of them, but there were bursaries to go to a private school and they were funded. And so I would you know, when my mates would be playing out and I'd be like really shouting at my mum to let me play out. I was, you know, at home trying to work out verbal reasoning and and maths and reading and all those sorts of things. And for two or three years before the entrance exams and then I took the entrance exams and that was it. It's kind of ironic that I did loads of hard work and really disciplined in getting to the school. And then once I got into the school, I let it all fall apart. To be fair to my mum, she thought that the hard work was getting me to school. But actually the hard work began once you got to school because you to to thrive in an environment that is kind of an elite academic environment, you need the infrastructure around you. And I don't think my mum knew that. And I, as I said, I was always a charmer, a bit wily. And I, if I could figure out how to not do work, I, I was very good at evading that. So I probably um, you know, made it a bit more difficult for my mum. But I should also point out for your listeners that I grew up in a single parent home, you know, when, so when I talk about my mum, it was, it was literally just my mum. My father passed away when I was 10 months old and my sister was six years old and my mum was just 27 and had only just come to the country about eight years before that. So couldn't speak the language when she came over and worked really hard, night school, fed us, clothed us, you know, my sister went through university, I went through private school. And she retired from the NHS eventually. So to go from not speaking the language to being a translator for the NHS, speaking something like six Indian subcontinent languages. Yeah, like it's uh, it's pretty special. So I I just got to give her some shout outs, you know, just because... That's that's that's
1: necessary and that's amazing. It's also interesting that even when I start thinking about it now, you talk about your story, even though you went into school and you didn't get the results, you got educated and that education that you had, which was maybe able to tap into a different subset of, of culture and still be grounded in the environment you grew up in Tottenham, gave you a completely different perspective and a way of looking at people that no one else has. So when you're then leading teams in, in the UK, in Europe, in Middle East, in Asia, in Africa, you can see a lot of things that the standard person in the advertising world who grew up in a very middle-class environment is not exposed to, and they don't recognise, they don't see. So it's also another example of, there are times when we see that, I didn't get the results, and that's actually, no, there's something that happened in there. There's still an education and a learning and an experience that allowed me to be able to operate in the way that I operate now. I just didn't recognise at that point in time because society told Mm. me it was only one thing I was getting from this environment. Mm,
0: Absolutely. No doubt. Like, I I would say the fact that at, you know, 27, I was able to sit in a boardroom of a PR company or, you know, at 32 go in to be, you know, part of a regional leadership team, it stemmed from the confidence that I took from that experience. And this is why I'm so committed now to helping people to understand that there isn't just a level playing field, that there is a psyche built into people that Uh, grow up in poorer backgrounds or people that grow up in underrepresented parts of society, there is a psychology that is just kind of built in or put upon us. We don't walk into those situations feeling confident. Of course, we have individuals that transcend that. But I realised that what I took from that experience was because I was exposed to the opportunities. That's all we are needing. All we need as societies, to have access and to be exposed and to create our own stories and pathways and neural pathways, and then we're going to fly. And that's what hasn't been uh, available in advertising, in finance, in medicine, in hospitality, everywhere. It's just been, it's just been prevented and we need to work, I know that you and I are both doing work in this space, to create awareness, to create opportunity, And that's it. You know, that's what I see. I used to think that, oh, what makes me different? Nothing really makes me different except what access I had. I did get educated. I got educated on how to be confident, on how to hold myself, on how to be, uh, you know, authentic, but also be able to relate to somebody on a different level. And I brought all of that and I bring all of that every day. And I think that's what, you know, uh, allows me to be able to have a conversation uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, in a boardroom
1: and also, you know, street level as well. Yeah, And um, the interesting thing around being able to have, I guess, that lens and that frame of reference which other people don't have is when you start to introduce new things into the ecosystem, it doesn't always get received in the best possible way because other people don't quite understand it or understand why you're doing it. So I'm curious to learn as a HR previous HR professional, when you started to in- introduce new things, what were some of the experiences that you had, which I'm going to say challenging or really shaped and defined your journey, either good or bad?
0: I think you always have to assess, you have to assess the environment that you're in. I think there's the sort of the intention to create this perfect state of utopia. And then there's where you are today. So, so we often give this uh, analogy of the satnav, right? So for you to uh, plot your best pathway, you need to know where you are today and where you want to go, okay? So I always set out, uh, first thing I would do is always look at where I am. Where are we? What readiness is this business? What are the people like? What are the leaders like? What's the culture like? Because if I say, for example, went into an ad agency, as I did, and I said, OK, cool. Well, we're going to do this, you know, 20 point competency framework and we're going to transform the way we do performance. I would never have made the relationships or earned the right to kind of do some of the really groundbreaking things I did if I'd have gone in with that heavy handed approach. So you've really got to understand where you're at. But then you have to paint a vision for where you want to go. And it has to be ambitious and it has to be exciting and it has to be stretching. And then in order to do that, you then look at where you want to be, and then you sort of plot your best path. My approach was always going in to keep it quite simple, straightforward, and incremental. Once you've primed them for change, because if they've never had that sort of level of support and infrastructure and vision and strategy, you've got to just bring them along gently. Now, if it's something that requires immediate action, you can't evolve if this needs to be a revolution then you've got to do that. I would say, I will not say I was lucky, but I would just say that I think some of the things that are really driving change in organisations over the last few years around equality, uh, inclusion, around gender parity, those were sort of only really just coming into the fore just as I was leaving HR. I really would have relished still being in the HR game today because I think I would have been able to probably drive through a lot more than maybe I did even back then. I'm somebody that, that, that genuinely doesn't believe in having regrets because there's not a lot you can do with wasting energy on 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 what you could have done. It's really about putting your energy on what you're going to be doing moving forward. But if there's sort of some things that I might have done differently, I might have focused, I'd look back on what I focused on and redesign what I would have focused on. There are some things that I probably should have driven a bit harder As a leader of influence, a person of color, I reckon I probably should have done a bit more while I was in role. I'm trying to do my best now to make amends for that, but I think maybe I probably should have done a bit more back in the day. Honestly, like I had a, uh, you know, I always had a strong perspective on the lack of opportunity for people who didn't come from middle class, white, privileged backgrounds. I always had a perspective even before the world started talking about it. And I just focused on what was in front of me because there was a lot, it, you know, it was a busy job. Like we were trying to transform a region, which involved buying new businesses, selling businesses or closing businesses, closing markets, you know, there was all of that. So it was very, it was strategic, but it was almost quite tactical. And I just didn't take and make enough room to go, okay, well, we do need to have a long-term vision for how we're going to bring more people in, or we're going to talk to more people. And, so if I could go back, I would have just spent just this I would have distributed my time a bit differently that's all because for me legacy impact is really important when we leave this place and go on somewhere else, you want to look back and you think, okay, I made a difference now of course we make a difference in our immediate circle in our families our friends, but I personally want to make a bigger impact, and it's not just about how much my bank account looks what it looks like when when I leave it's gotta be about you've had impact, and at a micro level, I just try and give as much as I can as you know you know you know that about me I try and give as much as I can away for free to help other people, but beyond that, it would be amazing to genuinely in the work that we do to have a significant impact that changes the conversation or changes the way people do things. I think that's really something that I'm working towards.
1: Yeah, and I think that's something that Mavericks stands for as well. It's around how can we make a difference to the individual, to the culture? How can we really turn things around? There's a phrase that you guys use, which is like unleashing their superpowers, helping to unleash their superpowers, which I absolutely love. I want to find a bit more around how do people learn how to not only in fact, how do they learn what their superpower is, and then how do they unleash your superpower?
0: Great questions. Where unleash your superpowers came from is really it's what we've been talking about now. Where you realise actually, where I realised I have superpowers. I may not have developed the academic superpower, but I have other superpowers. I have, you know, I'm great with people. I have incredible intuition, spidey senses, Uh, me and and Ruth uh, Penfold, who I know is a former guest of yours and, yeah, and, and friend, friend of ours. Yeah. We talk about the spidey sense and, you know, empathy, compassion. These don't sound like, you know, superpowers, but they are because when you put them and you use them together in a unique combination, you can do anything. And I think what I realized was having gone from somebody who left school with you no, know, academic qualifications to then being, you know, one of the core leadership team running, uh, you know, the region for a big advertising network. You have to have something. And that was where Maverick started. And actually my whole philosophy alongside my business partner, Chris and John, was to help people understand that, to help people see that, to help people live their authentic selves to live life based on what they think they should be doing or what they want to be doing versus what they're told to do. So this is kind of where it started from. How can we discover our superpowers? Well, firstly, we all have them. Everybody has superpowers. That's the first thing to say, because we all have things that energise us. We all have things that get us out of bed in the morning. We also have things that we're genuinely brilliant or amazing at. Things that bring us alive and make us feel vibrant those are your superpowers so when you wake up in the morning and you know this is what i really love doing this is what i'm really passionate about it's connected to what we say are your superpowers superpowers can otherwise be known as strengths and we talk about the things that energize us that we can be good at or great at and so when we correlate those things that energize us with the things that we do those can become superpowers so that's how you first start to be able to explore itself. But then think about what do people always compliment you on? What do your friends and family say? Yeah, you know what? You're really great at that. Or I come to you for this. You know what? I, I wouldn't go to anyone else in the world except you on this. You're great at this. Think about that. And if you don't know, if and sometimes depending on where you are in your life, sometimes it comes out like that. Sometimes if you're having some struggles and some challenges and, and and you're finding it more difficult to see your value and your worth It's a bit more difficult. So one of the things you can do is go to four to six people that you know and you trust and you love and you say, what do you think my superpowers are? What do you think my strengths are? What do you think makes me special? What can I do that no one else can do in the world? Ask those. And then those people that you trust will tell you really honestly, this is what we think you are amazing at. Or this is what we think really lights you up and then you can either take all of them and put them in your wallet or person carry them around with you or look for where there's some commonality or some themes where you can cluster. And then, you know, if you walk away with three superpowers, that's amazing. So that's sort of how to discover it. And then there are tools, you know, there's like Strengths Finder, which is one of the preeminent sort of strengths-based uh, tools. And then one that, you know, we use at Mavericks is something called Scope. You have to be, uh, you have to get trained to do it. But so if you don't know anyone that knows it, just go and find somebody. But, and then there's loads of stuff on the web that can, you know, l- lots of fun quizzes and things like that, that you can explore. So I would definitely look at doing a bit of that. The, there were some books, some great books around as well. Clifton have written a book on strengths that you can access. And then how do you utilize them in the world? Just start doing is the easiest way. So once you, <laughs> once you do the work in discovery, Once you do the work and you go, okay, no, no, compassion is a superpower or uh, intuition is a superpower or being able to have a vision for the future is a superpower or my physical strength is my superpower, whatever that might be. Once you've explored it and you feel comfortable with it and you can start, it resonates for you. Just start thinking about how you can start to bring it in the world. Tiny steps. I really believe in the idea of tiny steps lead to momentous kind of changes. So rather than thinking, oh, let's try and hit the peak of Everest in one go, Mm. just say, today I'm just going to put my backpack on, whatever that looks like. So for somebody who hasn't been using their superpower or would like to use it more, just do one tiny little thing that really affirms it. And then the next day, do a little bit more. And then the next day, do a little bit more. And before you know it, you're sort of doing it every day. I think creating habits out of it's really important. And then in the workplace... One of the best ways is to enrol other people in your vision and have some people hold you to account. So, you know, in a non-confrontational way, you say, okay, I'm going to be showing up in this way at work. I'm going to be doing this. And if your superpowers are better used doing other work within your current job or something else, really listen to that. Because if you spend too much of your life doing work that doesn't energise you or excite you, then... It's going to be an unfulfilled life. And I appreciate like not. it's not that straightforward. N- n- you know, it's not that easy for all of your listeners to just say, right, I'm going to do something completely differently. But I've always said that having a plan is different to executing a plan. Yeah. So, you know, put your plan together, get a vision, get people on board, get excited, get energised. It's the start of the year. It's a perfect time to kind of think, OK, what do I want to do differently? And then from there, start to figure out what your roadmap is, break it down into tiny steps, and then just start by doing.
1: Wow, that is awesome. I love the simplicity of being able to do that. I think sometimes when people hear words like, at least your superpower, or find your superpower, or find your passion, find your purpose, they think, okay, what's this big, massive thing I need to do? And it's actually, no, it's small, simple steps that actually, like I said, make a difference and lead up to something. Even being able to put your backpack on or being able to write stuff down, you're already moving in that direction of where you want to go. and That is progress. And a lot of times you don't think about it, but actually it is progress. It's not always what you get at the end. It's about how you start and then how you keep on going. That's where the true experience and learning and growth comes from. And I really like the way you've just kind of just captured that as well. Thank you. Uh, let me ask you, what's your superpower or superpowers? Ooh. One of them, actually, for me, is is calmness. Um, Oh, yeah, I can see that. I've learned over the years that, especially in the industry I've worked in, the environment around me is always very frantic. There's always something to go wrong, and we need to fix this and hurry up, and people were rushing and rushing and losing their heads. Well, actually, what you need in this space is some calmness to to actually think about what's really happened. Is that the real problem or just those are the symptoms? Those are the symptoms. Let's identify the problem, and then we can solve the problem let's kind of just bring the emotion level down. Because again, when people are so pent up, you start saying things and doing things and you're operating from a very reactive place and you don't give your brain the space and the be to think. So and a lot of times when people say calmness, that means you're not do nothing. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm a very action-oriented person. But I also recognize the benefit of being able to be calm in a situation, reflect on what's really happened, and then you can execute. So when you are taking the actions, It's about trying to ensure that you're not wasting limited resources that a lot of times you don't have a lot of. So I don't want to go for a scattergun approach is I'm willing to try stuff and fail at it, but at least we know that, okay, this is what we've done. This hasn't worked. Here's why it hasn't worked. Let's go again. As opposed to just doing some random different things. So calmness is definitely one of the ones I've learned, even though it almost cost me a job. (laughs) Uh I went to an interview and I was very much... But I was calm, I was just relaxed. Yeah. And the feedback from the interview was we absolutely loved you. We loved your experience. But we were surprised how you weren't stressed. And I'm like, okay, why well, is that a problem? They were like, and they were like they were just sure it wasn't gonna be a, wasn't gonna be a great fit. So it was supposed to be like two interview stages. I think it ended up being five, just because of that. Because I kept on meeting different people and they were like, okay, everything's on point, but we're not sure. And then when I eventually did step into that organisation, I remember I got the feedback a couple of months later that we love the calmness that you bring and you restore. I was just laughing at my head. like, seriously, this is the reason why? (laughs) (laughs) Because it looks so different to what they're so used to and everyone else was coming in. But I'm like, that's me knowing, having that self-awareness by myself. And I can lean into that. I wasn't going to change that for anyone.
0: I absolutely love that. And a couple of things to sort of say is that's exactly what we're talking about, which is, bringing your superpower in the situation and challenging people's notions of what perfect is or what right is, or, you know, and like, I know you. And so I spot that. And so that's another thing for your listeners is if it's easily spotable by other people, then you can see, I could see how that really kind of, you would bring that in a situation where it was really needed. And so that just pointed me to, so, you know, when you're in a team and you've done a bit of work together around superpowers i really encourage people to kind of do a bit of work collectively in teams and organisations as well one of the exercises we do in our work it's call on me so so you could say call on me for calmness so you can say to your team when things are like a bit like lots of fires going off call on me Cause I'll come and I'll help you just take a level headed approach to this situation. We can just take the pressure out of it. Call on me is a really powerful tool. So for me, I know that sometimes you just need to like, you know, bring in a creative brain to uh, a a challenge where people have been like going at it for, for a while. It's just a new, fresh objective call on me for that. And so I think call on me is a really powerful tool that you can do with your friends or do with your work colleagues or whatever. But I think it's a really powerful way to really bring superpowers to life in a real context.
1: Oh, well, I like that. And I can see so many uses for it. Like you said, in either at home, in your family setting, or at work with, with your teams, being able to know that actually this, these are this different people who operate in this way. I can go to them for this, I can go to them for that. It's, um, yeah, I really, really like that. I started to think as you were talking, I was like, okay, there are so many applications I can see with that. So that's a really, really brilliant tool that, um, that you guys have at Mavericks. Speaking of tools, actually, You have the Maverick Managers Toolkit. Yeah. What is that? Like, for those who don't know, what is a toolkit and why did you decide to create it?
0: So, the Maverick Managers Toolkit is is a digital uh, platform, uh, training platform for managers. And uh, it's three courses uh, setting up success, conversations that matter, and coaching made easy. And it's basically, we've just poured out our souls and our knowledge into these courses because. Uh, we wanted to find a way to help managers build some of those fundamental tools that you need in leading teams and people. Pre COVID, we were out in the world delivering these as training workshops. And we love doing it because actually we get access to managers and early stage managers and people who are kind of leading teams in really thriving businesses. And uh, what we found was that the same stuff kept coming up over and over again, thrown in at the deep end, given a team to uh, manage because I'm good at, say, engineering or I'm good at creative, right? So you come in as a craft expert and then you become an accidental manager. And then what happens is over time is you end up stop being, you stop being recognised for your craft that you're excellent at and you start getting looked at for being a bad manager. And then the worst case scenario is that great talented individual Gets exited because they weren't managing their teams, and so often companies don't support that journey. And so, what we wanted to do was to create something that was accessible uh, that people could do that do in their own time. Uh, but and then, but importantly, out, differently to say, coming into one of our workshops is they have that knowledge at their fingertips whenever they need it. So, if you're going to go into a difficult conversation, or if you're going to go in and do a a performance review, or if you want to do a coaching session, you just, you can do a quick refresher. So that's why we did it. And we did it also because, you know, in the first lockdown, we had just a little bit of space. I mentioned this to you before, we had a little bit of space to just take a breather. We thought, what do we want to do? What are we really passionate about? And what we're really passionate about is impacting at scale and helping people be their best selves in the world. And this was a part one of how we do it. And, uh, you know, it's been really successful we're really blessed that we've got some great clients and it's making a difference and uh, yeah we've got some new stuff coming uh, into the toolkit very soon so more courses and, and more content
1: so I feel really good about it When you're talking about legacy and lasting impact that's one of those things you know like yeah. <laughs> I know you're somewhere here child, what you could have done there but I'm like actually you know what you've you had to transform and change a massive problem a massive problem area that we see time and time again and it's coming up yeah Especially in the last, when I think about the great resignation and what the great are, the great reset, the great reshuffle, the great retention, all that kind of stuff. Actually, those four different quadrants really, really link back into what you just talked about right now. And it just goes mm-hmm. to show how much of what you're doing with that toolkit, how much you can make a difference. to a lot of managers, a lot of organizations.
0: Yeah, thank you. We did some research when we were putting this together. And according to Gallup, companies pick the wrong candidate for manager 82% of the time. Wow. 82% of the time they get it wrong. And then managers account for a 70% variance on employee engagement. So basically you get the wrong candidate in, they're going to have a disproportionate impact on employee engagement and people leave and your company and your organization suffers and people get burnt out. And those poor managers as well, it's not their fault. Like sometimes they're just picked, hand picked to go and do this thing. They're going to get stressed and they're going to get burnt out. So some of the most amazing stuff coming out of this is that people are just now saying, oh, you know, just don't feel as stressed about tackling some of these things anymore. And I feel like I have the tools and I have, you know, what I need. And that is the thing that is really important. It isn't about, of course I want to build something because I'm ambitious but actually, what makes us different to other e-learning providers, I think, is that we care about we care about the journey that people go on. We care about the, the whether it has an impact. And I'm not saying that other e-learning providers, you know, don't. I just think they're more focused on the platform and the variety within their libraries. And whereas I, I'd much rather put fewer pieces out, but that they really serve a purpose and they have an impact.
1: Yeah, that intentionality. Important, I guess, is something aligned to your personal values and how you want to show up in the world. Mm-hmm. And there was a word that you ran out there was around stress and burnout. With someone who is a founder of a company, who is a husband, <clears throat> you've got three kids, how do you create boundaries so all those different worlds do not overlap but they coexist in the best possible way? and you don't get stressed and burnout.
0: Yeah. Okay. Confession. I'm really bad. I'm really bad at it. You know, I'm not good at it. I'm getting better. And I realise the importance of it. And I think I have to practice what I preach. So, you know, it's really easy for me to observe and to give advice and to coach around this. But like, you know, the, the principles of it are really easy, but the practice of it is I find more difficult. That said, I always make a point of having dinner with my family we sit down, we sit at the table and we eat together. I, I predominantly do the cooking. So I have to factor that in, you know, in terms of my day. I'm much, I used to work weekends because when you sort of have your own business and it's all encompassing, I would work a lot of the weekends. I don't anymore. I think the thing I'm not really brilliant at is not not having my phone next to me and not responding to emails late at night. And I've sort of convinced myself that my clients who may be in other parts of the world to sort of expect it from me. But I don't think that's true. I think that's just me not doing the work. I think it's really about doing your best to get into flow and working really smart and just checking yourself. You know, I found myself once towards the end of last year, I had to make some payments for the, you know, I had to just put some stuff through. And I was doing it at like 10 o'clock at night. I was sitting in front of the TV. So I'd sort of convinced myself that I was hybrid working. I was still watching a bit of TV and, you know, and and doing it. And I just checked myself and I was like, I don't need to be doing this at 10 o'clock. There's not that this payment isn't going to go through tonight. It's going to go through in the morning anyway. And you do sometimes just find yourself on autopilot and you've got to stop and you have to just put those boundaries in place. And so sometimes that's just having a word with yourself and that may be enough. Sometimes you've got to put some actual barriers in the way. You need to, I found what's really helped me in the past is uh, self-imposed screen time, you know, not definitely not, you know, you know, charging the phone by uh, the bed. Don't look at emails the first thing in the morning. Making time for exercise and meditation. I mean, you're brilliant at this. Like, you're like you're fantastic. You you're always posting from your runs <laughs> when it's still dark outside, and we're all sleeping cozy in bed. Um, but I find that really inspiring, like because it, it, you really prioritise uh, you know the importance of health and well-being for what you do. And I really, you know, I take a lot of inspiration from that.
1: Oh, thank you. And actually, it's, and it's vice versa. I remember when we, we spoke last year and we we're talking about like, keep, flighty, keep um, Fridays clear, or at least keep one day a week clear where it's just about you. And I really took that on board. I remember all the last year, after our conversation, I'm like, right, that's it. And I literally blocked out all my Fridays. Mm. And that was just like my day. So even the conversations and stuff that was happening were conversations with with friends or whatever. It wasn't like, it wasn't meetings, it wasn't work. A couple of days you had to do a couple of things, but mostly yeah. throughout, was after that conversation, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to do this. And it was brilliant. Yeah. It really, really yeah. made a difference. We need to say like, you know what, I, towards the end of my week, I can ease out of it rather than ramping all the way towards the end. And I say that from a position of privilege working for myself at that point in time, but still it was that intentionality was key. Because like you say, if you don't do it, you know it, and you talk about it, you coach about it, you work with clients on it. But until you create that thing for yourself, it's not going to happen. So I really appreciate yeah. you you dropping those gems in me last year as well.
0: Yeah, no pleasure. And that is actually something that I've continued to do. I mean, I think there's, you know, inevitably, unless you're careful, things start to creep in. So it's a good reminder for me to just, you know, start bouncing things out. But, you know, being able to create space to have a conversation with you on a Friday is really powerful. And, I, and it means I can come into this conversation Feeling good, feeling like rested, feeling ready and energized for it. So, I think it's really important. Not everyone can just, like you say, have the privilege to just do that, you know, all a Friday, but there are moments within your week that you can do that. So, for some people, it might be a Tuesday reading hour, it may be a meditation, uh, lunchtime on a Thursday, whatever those moments might be, create those moments. And, you know, Josh, who I do the podcast with. He said, when you think, oh, I haven't got time to do that, I can't do that, just check yourself when you've spent an hour on Instagram just scrolling or on LinkedIn or you've watched something on Netflix. Just like You've got to rebalance what you think is important in your life versus what isn't important, and you'll find that time. It was a really good moment because I used to say, oh, I feel like I need to be spending more time dropping the kids off or picking the kids up and I just don't feel like I have time and it's like yeah but how much time do you actually spend just procrastinating I said that's true (laughs) and and I I think procrastinating is an important part of the creative process I really do I feel like that some of my best stuff comes when I'm doing nothing but I do know that sometimes it can just it can go into this sort of why am I looking why have I spent the last 45 minutes looking at reels of dogs doing funny things because just because I've you know we're both new dog parents aren't we so uh You know, and you find yourself on this rabbit hole and you just go, okay, fine, you know, just check and balance. But the other thing I would say is something that I've really started to tune into at the end of last year and we've really brought into this year is around focus. And so I use a tool called Calendly, as you know, which is the ability to just get yourself away from the mess of scheduling. You just give someone a link, they can just plug in whenever there's a window and, you know, there you go. And that's brilliant, and it does save you a lot of time, but also you lose your own democracy. And then suddenly you'll be like, oh, I was planning to do this, and then suddenly I've got this meeting. And when you're a coach and running your business and you've got all these other things, your brain needs to move from all different places. And so I would find sometimes that I'd have a tech meeting for our business, for our platform, and then I had to do a coaching session, and then I'm doing a workshop. And like you cannot get into a a state of flow Mm. because it actually takes you such a long time to to transition in and out of flow state. And the way that we are so interrupted in our lives these days by emails, by notifications, by alerts and things like that, you've got to be able to find a way to really, to get true work done, to get deep focus. You need to be able to do it in a way where you can minimise those interruptions. So what I've been doing now is where I used to give access to my coaching clients across the whole week, not including Fridays, I now only limit it to Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So I, I make it all available. You can we can find the windows, but then outside of that, I think I can then do the other things. And so just really finding those pockets where you can really focus, you'll get so much more done. And so yes, just yesterday, me and the team we were talking about how do we take that up a notch? How do we take that up a level? But I think that's what makes the difference. So that when I want to mess about and procrastinate and scroll, that's part of you know part of the design, as opposed to just trying to kind of move from you know, this to that, to this to that, which means that we're just not as effective as we could be.
1: That switching of your brain from one thing to the other is, it's not even talked about enough. It takes a lot out of you. I remember when I was doing consultancy and coaching, running both my companies at the same time, and I'll go from having conversations around this delivery, which is something completely different. And I go into a coaching conversation and just moving from one to the other one. I used to be like, yeah, I was present. But my head was like, "Nah, I can't. I can't. <laughs> it was just so divergent. It wasn't so like divergent in the way that your brain actually works and and What you need to think about this and what you need to do to deliver this is not great. So you having those times of focus and being clear around even those boundaries around, okay, there's a days that I'm definitely can book what you want. Other ones are my time and I can decide what I want to do with them and ease into them. It's really, really good. It's also interesting that I'm um, not promoting Apple, but Apple recently brought out an update and one of the options they now have is focus time where you can block a time off and it literally shuts down all the distractions or you can literally just focus on what you're trying to do, which I also really, really like as well.
0: Yeah, we need tools like that. You know, what Apple's bought or you, you need those sort of moments where you shut everything off. And if we just rely on willpower, some people will get there, but most people don't. Nah. So you need the tools. Like the thing is, we don't send letters on typewriters anymore, right? So like, so like the world has evolved. I I always like make fun of people that still use like the one password across everything. They're operating like they're still in 1982 (laughs) with their password. (laughs) But, but you know, you need to have a password manager now. You need to have something uh, that basically because cyber criminals are clever and you've got to stay with the game. And I think everything needs to evolve in how we operate. So if we need to use tools, to shut down and to help us to focus, then yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. I think that's what we should be doing.
1: It's my last two questions are one as a parent, how are you just raising your kids? When you think about your experiences with school and everything else, and even that whole narrow focus of education and all that, how has that shaped how you parent your children?
0: It's a great question. I think, Helping them to really understand what they're passionate about is really important. Challenging, questioning the narrative and asking questions, being curious, that's really important. I think also what I didn't have was the structure and the rigor of just coming down, sitting down, at least doing something every day and just, you know, just doing what you need to do. And I think being able to create that environment and support them through kind of the learning journey. But more importantly than that, I'm really just trying to help them to discover what it is to be a good human being. So when, say, for example, inevitably, you know, with three children, you'll always get, every day you'll get a story of, oh, this person did this, or that person did that to me, or I did this, or I said this to that person. And rather than just tell them, oh, what you did was wrong, or what you did was right, actually having a conversation around helping them to develop their thinking so that it's not like... Oh, I should have done it this way last time. But actually, when they come into a situation that's where they're faced with a challenge that they kind of make the right call. I talked about this on the podcast a little while ago with Josh. The age of innocence has massively reduced today than when we were kids, right? The access to all sorts of stuff that we weren't, didn't have access to, whether it's kind of, you know, things that they shouldn't be seeing from an adult entertainment perspective or, kind of the language that's kind of going around or Instagram and, you know, all this kind of need to fit in, all that sort of stuff is very different. So their decision-making powers just need to elevate compared to what when we were just running around on BMXs or, you know, or whatever. It's just that they have to be making different decisions and we can't just treat them like for like. They're not the same 10-year-olds as we were 10-year-olds or, you know, and so we have to help them be able to make decisions For themselves as opposed to just tell them don't do this don't do this take your phone like you've they've got to understand why and we talk often about a what and a how in an organizational setting what do you need to do how are we going to do it and Simon Sinek talks about the why you know why why is as important as if not more important I think when it comes to parenting or supporting the why is as important as the what or the how because it's really easy as a parent as you know to just do a sort of do as I say, not as I do type thing, because it's quick and like you got to get through things sometimes. But I'm not perfect, mate. You know, like I, I'm not always, like, I don't want to, I'm not this amazing parent. Like I get it wrong a lot of the time. But I think just helping to understand that, you know, helping them to understand why around decisions and things is
1: really important. Sorry, it took a long time to answer. That, um, it's a question that needs some in-depth, response to, so I really, really like that. I guess my final one would be, how do you define leadership? Oh,
0: God, I should have anticipated this one. (laughs) (laughs) How do I define leadership? I think leadership is, I'll just give you my definition of leadership. Mm -hmm. Okay. So my definition of leadership was always never expecting somebody to do something you wouldn't do yourself that doesn't mean you always have to be doing the same work, but like you have to be able to be empathetic and understand what the impact might be for that person. It's about uh, setting a pathway. It's about um, creating a vision and it's about nurturing the people that you're responsible for to be able to, to have the confidence to be able to do the work. And it's about you know, having conviction and supporting decisions and being okay with failure. So I think sometimes as a leader, you see this a lot in like war movies, like the people that come out straight out of their military training and straight into war and they make these calls and they feel like they need to show up and be the leader, even though they haven't really earned the right to be the leader. They've just been given the title. As I think, you know, when you earn the right to be a leader, you listen, you understand, you go, okay, cool, I might have got this one wrong. So let's take a different pathway. That's when leadership really, really stands out. You don't need to be the right one all the time. You listen to the great people around you and that's how you can be a great leader.
1: Like I said, I just start a lot of wealth of experience come through and um, I just love, that. love the sharing. And this is, when I talk about what Mavericks do as an organisation, which obviously you've, you've co-founded, the work you're doing with managers and the toolkit as well, you can see a lot of that coming through in the way that you see, so you see the world and the difference that you're, you're making and the impact that you want to make within organizations, within cultures and within people and helping them to unleash their superpowers and come alive. So I really appreciate you coming on today and listening to the stories and the gems that you're just dropping. So thank you very much. Wow.
0: That's, uh, that's really kind of you. And honestly, it's been an honor. What you're doing in the world is incredible. I mean, the reason I first reached out was because, you know, you just kept showing up on my feed. <laughs> and I was like, who is this guy? He's brilliant. And then we sort of, you know, and then we connected and we found that we have lots in common. We know people in common. But, you know, I take uh, so much inspiration from your leadership. Uh, this podcast is incredible. You've got some fantastic uh, wisdoms that you bring uh, yourself. And I've thoroughly enjoyed having this conversation and uh, and uh, really grateful to uh, have been asked to have this conversation with Dude. you so thank you
1: thank you very much and he's a Liverpool supporter can you believe that <laughs> <laughs> squeeze that in the end I've too I've one as well <laughs> uh, thanks Hess. and this is Everyday Leadership and I'll see you next week